We are in a series this morning where we have been going through the book of Jonah. And in the book of Jonah, we have said that instead of focusing on Israel or focusing on God's ways with Israel or God's ways uh, with the surrounding nation, it's really a focus on God's ways with Jonah. And we have seen repeatedly throughout the book of Jonah, as we're going to see again today, a man who, instead of moving toward God, he moves away from God. God seeks to lead him to be the man that he would have him to be, to be a prophet and to go to speak to Nineveh. But instead of obeying and following God's directive, Jonah goes back into independence and he goes his own way. He goes into some very dark places, and yet God is unrelenting by His mercy and His grace. He doesn't kick him to the curb and says, I am done with you. Not again. But repeatedly, He comes to Jonah in a dark place, and He leads him back into the light. He leads him back into a life where he can serve and and know intimacy with God. This morning, we find Jonah, and he's sitting now post the evangelism or the preaching in Nineveh. And I want you to see that Jonah, as he is there post watching Nineveh, he has a problem. And his problem is anger. If you look in verses 1 and 2, it says, It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said while I was yet in my country? What Jonah is demonstrating is what we can uh, identify as the anger iceberg. Now, the anger iceberg is where anger as an emotion is what we see on the surface. But beneath the surface, as we trace it to its roots, are the emotions of frustration, a sense of injustice, ill treatment, displeasure. And Jonah demonstrates that his anger is not toward Nineveh. His anger is not towards himself. His anger is not toward simply his circumstances, but deep beneath the iceberg. His displeasure with life itself is because he's displeased with God. His angry, brooding self is because he's angry with God. David Simmons, a uh, psychologist who has written more about uh, emotions than um, I can repeat this morning, makes this quote in his book, Healing Memories, Perhaps the most puzzling and shocking experience of all is when devout Christians find themselves overrun by feelings of anger against God Himself. This is terribly hard to admit. I have spent many sessions gently leading counselees 
to the place where they finally realize their resentment against God. The shock has been so great that some have momentarily passed out in my office or have become nauseated to the point of vomiting, for they love God and want to serve and please Him and are devastated when they discover this submerged anger against Him. Another quote briefly uh, out of the same book, depression. Don't fail to make this connection. For many of us at Two Rivers struggle, struggle with despair in life. We struggle with depression over our current circumstances. Uh, David Simmons says, depression is frozen rage. Think about our iceberg. If you have a consistently serious problem with depression, you most likely have some unresolved anger in your life. So often, the roots of depression are buried in the subsoil of early family life. Now, this is not to dismiss chemical depression. It's not to dismiss that we have been incredibly hurt, many of us, in in the soil of early family life. It's not to dismiss and say it's wrong to be depressed. Far from it. But he's saying behind that depression is yet something else. There's something beneath the surface. We don't just have depression and despair. Think about, there are those of us that when we're angry, we stuff it. And then there's those of us that when we're angry, we spew it. But those that stuff it continue to put it in a container. We, can, we stuff it, stuff it, stuff it. And like a toxic nuclear waste container, we bury it, bury it, bury it. And it gets deep and we go below the surface. But in time, it will leak. And it will leak out as anger. And it leaks out as anger toward God. We say, God, you are not very loving to me. Or, God, you are not providing for me. We begin to distrust God and His ways. And I submit to you that behind Jonah's despair and depression... I mean, behind his anger is his despair toward God. Behind his anger and his displeasure is an anger toward God. And so God sends a worm. If you forget everything else this morning, I want you to think about this. If you're ever going to be able to embrace Not simply acknowledge the worms that God sends in your life. The trials are the things that we need, feel like we need or want that we're being denied. Or the things that we don't want and we don't think that we need that come into our life. Whatever the worms are in our life, if you're ever going to trust God's worms in your life, you're going to have to be able to get to the point that you grasp God's 
grace. And not simply grasp it by circumstances changing, but grasp it by faith. Grasp it by looking at His nature and recounting who He has always been, who He is, and who He will be. And that's what Jonah recounts in verse 2. For he says, that's why I made haste to flee, for I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from from disaster. What Jonah is doing is he's reciting the DNA of God. The DNA of God was most clearly given to Moses. Another time, Moses had been leading the Israelites through the wilderness, that he had come to a point where he he was depressed. And his leadership, he was exhausted. And he was even looking to God and saying, God, what a people, what a bunch of misfits to lead. And God said, but they're my people. And Moses said, if I could just, if I can just see you, God, if I can just know who you are, then I'll be able to continue to love this people. And God revealed Himself. It says in Exodus 33, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim my name. He put Moses in a cleft of a rock and he passed. And he says, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. All of Israel, and not just the prophets such as Jonah, would have known this. Paul will recite this again in Romans. I will, show, I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. My love is not bound. My love is not tribal. My love is not clannish. My love is not stereotypical. My love is not simply one city against another. My love is not xenophobic. I will be gracious to whom I choose to be gracious. I'll be merciful. If I want to be merciful to the Gentiles, I'll be merciful to the Gentiles. Exodus 34. The Lord passed before him, that is Moses, and proclaimed, as he said he would, the Lord. The Lord. Notice his caps. There's no higher God than this God. A God merciful and gracious slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and sin. Psalm 145, verses 8 and 9. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. Jonah knew this. I know this. You know this. You know these two things that make up the DNA of God. You cut God and He bleeds this. You take out the beating heart of God and it beats this with every pulse. One, two, one, two. Steadfast love, slow to anger. Steadfast love, slow to anger. Steadfast love, slow to anger. Beating, beating, beating. Jonah knew it. Do you find it interesting uh, in verse 2 where it says, and he prayed? This 
This, we're listening in to Jonah's prayer. There, there is a daily habit that Jonah possesses that he doesn't have to make a daily decision to do. I pray that at Two Rivers that you're becoming a people who have similar daily habits that you don't have to remind yourself of, that they are daily habits that you don't have to make a daily decision to do. One of them is speaking to God. Jonah had that daily habit, speaking to God. Number two, Jonah had the daily habit of hearing from God. God spoke to Jonah. Now, God is not going to speak to us in an audible voice. He's going to speak to us here. That's why we read. We don't just read for content, knowledge, and history. We read saying, God, speak to your servant for I'm listening. Number three, Jonah knew that he was a part of a church. Jonah was plugged in to a community of believers called Israel. He was a Jewish prophet. He was a spiritual leader in that church. He spoke to God. God spoke to him. He was a part of a church or a spiritual community tied in. Daily habit, didn't have to think about it. But there was a disconnect, wasn't there? It really should throw us off center to realize he had all of this knowledge in his head. He's reciting it to God. Steadfast love, slow to anger. You're that kind of God. I know it, I know it, I know it, I know it. But the disconnect is to his heart. In northern Spain, there emerged a man by the name of Igneous... Lopez, and he began to gather fellow believers around him, and in order to encourage intimacy and daily intimacy with God, he began to write exercises, spiritual exercises for them to practice. You know him as Saint Ignatius of Loyola, who founded the Jesuits. But his spiritual exercise that he wrote was, he said, we as Christians and followers of Christ are either moving toward God or we're moving away from God. And he said, use these exercises to determine whether or not you're moving toward God or you're moving away from God. He says, when you're moving toward God, you have feelings of consolation. It's that time where you know that God loves you. You know that you have an eternal place in His family as a son or His daughter. You're experiencing the very riches of Jesus Christ. You have peace no matter what the worm circumstances are. You feel so close to God. But he says, coming in to that, you need to be aware of the experience of being desolate, desolation. And he said, the feelings of desolation are when you feel you know God, but you feel cold toward him. Your ways and your images and your makeover of God begins to become the rule and the God that you follow. You begin to move more toward God.
God accommodating you, then you accommodating God. You're drifting. And he says, you began to experience despair. You began to go into like a spiral of spiritual death. I know as this spiritual exercise, if I give it to myself, if I say, okay, Stogner, today, is your heart experiencing consolation or desolation? Or another way to put it, am I experiencing joy and life, energy, passion for God? Or am I just normal? (laughs) Am I experiencing anxiety, insecurities, feeling insignificant, a growing despair or depression with my circumstances? He would say, if you're experiencing those things, then we need to pray and return and come back in the direction toward God. St. Ignatius would say, look at those experiences. At this point, Jonah is modeling those things to us. We see it in the New Testament with the elder brother. In Luke 15, now think about Jonah. Here in Luke 15, it says, Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked him what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, your father has killed the fatted calf, because he has received, he has received him safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. We see that, this situation, in a similar way with Jonah. That Jonah is very much like the elder brother. That when he looks at Nineveh, he takes no joy in their salvation through their repentance and their faith now placed in God. Instead, if you look at verse 5, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there till he should see what would become of the city. There's no discipleship. There's no joining them together to pray. There's no saying, let me teach you beginning with creation about God. There's no spiritual friendship. There's no relationship. We know. We know at Two Rivers because we feel that our mandate are spiritual friendships. To disciple mutually, disciple one another. To have people that speak into our life and to speak into other lives. We know how necessary, not only is that the great commission of Matthew 28, but we know that it's vital for us to grow and to be the men and women that we are destined to be. We also know that we need regular reminders from others as we naturally move away from God of the gospel, of God's steadfast love and is slow to anger, particularly when we face the worm. We need to be reminded of God's grace. It is God's compassion when God comes to him with a question. And he says, Jonah, and this is a paraphrase of me, 
Jonah, is this really the wise and sensible response to the situation before you? Or another way to put it, are you sure that your reaction of anger toward me is on target or is it really off base? In other words, are you assessing this situation such that you would get angry toward me correctly? Jonah, Jonah's anger toward God has drifted such that it resembles, it resembles other groups who would say, with my head, I have, an underst- I have a knowledge of God, I don't have an understanding of his ways. Time won't permit me to go historically and tease them all out. But consider the Pharisees. The Pharisees knew, they knew about God. But when it came to loving other people, they found themselves unable to love the tax collector and the sinner. And they looked at Jesus Christ with judgment because he fellowshiped with them. Fast forward. During the Reformation, the Inquisition was designed by the Catholic Church to come to the Reformers who were preaching grace, grace, grace. You can be forgiven of anything. Anybody can be forgiven of anything. And it's not by working hard or or reforming yourself, but it's by grace. It's not moral reformation. It's spiritual transformation, being transformed by the love and the grace of Jesus. And they said, no, it is duty. It is discipline. It's obedience to the law. Fast forward to today. Who is it today? Are you familiar with Westboro Baptist Church? Westboro Baptist Church has become famous uh, because they will, particularly, they will will show up and protest uh, to get an audience to protest homosexuality or, or gay marriage. And they will show up, for instance, at a military funeral and they will have signs that say things like, God hates perversion. Uh, you are going to die and burn where the worm will, will forever turn in your flesh. God hates you the most. Now remember my premise. My premise is you can know theology. You can know things that God teaches. You can know about God and be very, very far from God's heart. We could look at the Philistines. We could look at the Inquisition. We could look at Westboro Baptists. And we could say, yeah, I see where you're pointing to in the Bible, but that's not the way that God operates. He is a God that shows grace toward those that He would show grace to. Mercy toward those He would show mercy to. And Jonah says, I don't like that God. I don't like that about God. He didn't deny it. He just said, I don't like about that God. So in essence, what he was doing was he was making over God. I I am thankful for people in my life that I have given permission that if they ever see this, this 
precision of theology, if they ever see me being very biblically precise, but I'm becoming increasingly narrow toward people. In other words, I I say, I love God, I just don't like people. I love God with all my soul, strength, mind, and heart, but I don't love my neighbor as myself. Or if I began to use God's Word to justify my lack of compassion to others, that I've given people permission in my life to challenge me. People that, that love me. People that can come along and say, is your anger toward this group really, what is it based on? What is, what is your, you, you, whenever you talk about this person, you are, man, your body language changes. You are so judgmental. Rather than praying or learning to love your enemies, man, I kind of get the idea that you would relish the fact of an early death and that they go to hell. And I am thankful that I've got people in my life that I have given permission, a permission slip, to speak into my life. I've got the bully pulpit this morning, so I don't have to require your permission. But is there anybody, is there anybody in your life, particularly those that you would put in the category of God's enemies? So think about who you think God's enemies on earth are. In that category, are they really God's enemies? You know, modern-day Nineveh today is Mosul. That's Syria. That's where all this is unfolding. And they imagine being sent as a, as, a, as a missionary to such a hostile people. Would you go because you are so broken by God's heart for that people that you would be able to minister in compassion? Or would you be more like Jonah, just very, very reluctant? And you would just do it. You would go and you would preach but you would probably preach the harshness of God. You'd be very surprised when they come to faith. And then when they come to faith, you'd be like, I'm really, I'm not excited about spending all eternity with these people. Jonah had a problem, but we don't have to go to Mosul. Do your neighbors know that you're a Christian? Why or why not? Is it just a lack of courage or is it a lack of affection? God comes and he sends a worm. And there are a number of questions that I would leave you to discover for yourself. But I'm amazed. I'm amazed that God sent a worm. I mean, first of all, do you think there's a greater argument or evidence for God's sovereignty? That means his control, his universal control. Nobody is is over him. He is the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords. He is sovereign over creation. He tells the wind and the waves, shh, and they shush. He tells a great fish, right about now, go here and then swallow him. Okay, three days, three days, three days. Okay, I want you to come up and vomit him on shore. And now he goes from a great fish, to God says, worm, here's what I need you to do. I mean, I don't know if you've ever tried to train a worm. Uh, You can't do it. 
you know. Here, where am I putting out some little worm food, whatever it is that they eat, you know, they process dirt. So here's, here's oh, okay, great. God, in his sovereign design and in his reach, sends a worm. I would have been done with Jonah. I know how short I can be with people. The number of chances that I can give. But God, in His relentless pursuit, in His continued grace, He stoops so low that He'll speak to a worm to reach a worm. He'll say, I'll use even a worm to show Jonah compassion. And Jonah, Jonah, says yes to God when God says, when he bites the plant that gave him shade. And Jonah, as you read here in 4, in verse uh, 3, it says that when the plant grew up over him, Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. It's the only thing in the whole 48 verses of Jonah that we read got him excited. The only time that Jonah gets excited, exceedingly glad. I mean, the only time he's dancing and laughing and saying, man, now this is joy is over a comfort that God has provided. Not when he saw people who will be his brothers and sisters in faith. Not when he sees a people that were once his enemies now coming in to be friends with God. No gladness there. It's just sit back, let them let him run it in the ditch. But when he has a little shade that God provides, he takes joy not in God, the creator of the shade, but simply the shade. And God says, what will you do when I take away the shade? What will you do when I take away the comfort? And he confronts Jonah in his anger. And in essence, what he's saying there. In verse 10, that you pity the plant, but you don't pity the people. Strange love. You love your comforts more than you love compassion for others. And that strikes my heart. There are two things that I love that I make idols out of. Two things. Number one is comfort. I'll tell you what the other one is later. Not to this morning, privately. But comfort is one of those things. I can come home and I can feel like, wow, I've worked hard today in ministry. I deserve. I start deserving things. I've worked hard. I've been, whoo, been slaving in Nineveh. I need a little shade, God. I've been serving you. I need a little comfort. And if that comfort gets wrecked, guess what? How many of you know the idol of comfort? How many know worshiping comfort for what it brings to you when comfort is denied you? What do you do? Well, Hannah's sitting in the front row. She, don't, don't, please don't tell him. Let me tell him. I get angry. I get hopping mad. And I look and my response is so inappropriate. I mean, it's like, whoa, where is that coming from? My comfort was taken away. For a season. And my anger, if I trace it, trace it, trace it, says, God, you're over all circumstances. What are you doing here? 
Are you teaching me not to rely in those things, but to rest more in the things that you have provided and the yet will provide? Are you teaching me that I can, you can put aside, I, can, I should put aside my comfort and I should serve in this situation, whatever the interruption, and it's usually people are an issue, whatever that interruption is, that I can love people and that means I'm going to have to die to self and serve them over myself. Who modeled that better than Jesus Christ? Who said, I will give up every comfort? The worm in his life was not so much a worm that ate the plant as much as we call wormwood and the gall. It was a tree. It was a wormy tree that he would be hung naked in the intersection at Golgotha for all eyes to look upon him, to laugh at him, to ridicule him, to crucify him, to kill him. Why didn't he come down? He could have, you know. Was it like his accuser said, it's just weaknesses that are keeping him there? Or was it strength saying, I can deny my comfort. A discomfort that we will never, never know. We cannot even imagine. Totally deserted by his father. He said, I will go even to hell and back out of my compassion for this people. I'll face more than a scorching sun without a plant. I'll face death and will die in the blazing sun for those that I will have compassion upon, those that are outside of the Pharisees' mercy, those that had to, for a season, even be outside of God's mercy because we were lawbreakers and sinners, that he bridged that gap such that now he can say, God, you can have mercy on these people who have not known you. What's Jonah going to do? Jonah, like the elder brother, is left under a withered plant in the sun. We don't know what he's going to do. I mean, is he going to say, oh, I now see the value of that worm. That worm has woken me up. That there's nothing that you've denied me that I need. And everything you send into my life, I do need. I see now that you're waking me up not to put my... My, my worship and value and all of my joy and comforts, but in people, in loving people like you have shown mercy, that I can show mercy, like you've shown mercy to me. Oh, I wish that he finishes the story that way, but we don't know. You finish the story. Finish the story for yourself this morning. Where, what do you find bringing you exceeding joy? How do you face the worm? Are you growing to trust that God's worm is a trial or an issue that He brings into your life to make you more merciful and compassionate, to make you steadfast in your love, and slow to anger, 
molding you even in the image of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray that you can see that. I pray that you're, I pray that Jonah, that the story ends like that. Man, I no longer, you know, get angry at worms. I begin to ask, what God, what is God up to? And I begin to bless him for the worms to the degree that I'm able to grasp his grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we can come to this table and that we can see one who faced the worm, who faced the greatest trial, a trial that was really our destiny. We should be the ones that suffer and die. But Father, you showed mercy to us by providing Christ. And he faced the worm on our behalf that we might be able to grasp grace. And I pray this morning as we take hold of this bread and this cup that we're able to see what we're holding in our hand and in our mouth. That we can grasp the good news that you have shown us mercy. And then, Father, that mercy will overflow. It'll overflow to others and in all situations. Father, that we will become less and less angry towards you. We'll find despair and depression begin to dissipate as we begin to see again that you approach us. You have not abandoned us. You have not left us. But you make your approach to us again and again, even in trial, to show your mercy and your grace. So, Father, feed us till we want no more from this table. We pray in Christ's name.